Okay, welcome to part three of my podcast series where I ask whether or not society can be redeemed and I do this by looking at um, art, film and so far we have got to the conclusion that if society can be redeemed it can only be so if we accept that there is no alternative to the rule of law which is the rule of law of the ruling class in any given society and Blade Runner tells us if we submit to that then we're heading for a grim future where we lose our humanity our empathy and our compassion for one another so so far what we have gleaned from our inquiries is that the debates social, cultural, political, philosophical debates active in society that art procures and then that they consolidate those ideas reflect them back to us and um, tell us where we're heading Um, so now I'm going to look at Lord of the Rings and then I'm going to end this podcast in this series with some conclusions so the first thing to say is that Lord of the Rings is a thoroughly anti-war novel and film but I'm going to be referring to the films a lot in this Um, but I'm sure what I say applies to the novels as well I haven't actually read the novels it's on my to-do list but I've never gone round to it so the books were I believe written in the interwar years and post World War Two. They contain elements of uh, Tolkien's experiences in World War One, which is visible well throughout uh, the films. Um, notable examples are the Dead Marshes, where the faces of soldiers lie submerged underwater, and the marshes permanently burn. When they're walking through the marshes, uh, Frodo and Sam, that is, Gollum warns them not to fall in the water. Uh, in World War One, the warning was the same. Don't fall off the duckboards into the shell holes filled with water or you'll be sucked down and lost to the mud. Another example which is slightly more subtle is the Rohirrim, who were, uh, or the Rohirrim is maybe how it's pronounced. Uh, it is how it's pronounced in fact is the Rohirrim who were horse farriers um, and Tolkien was attached to the farriers and he was a horse master if you like during the war and when we see Aragorn soothing Bregel in two towers um, I think this is a surely an example of Tolkien showing the compassion and the care the farriers expressed to the horses or to the horse of the in the cavalry um, that he, Tolkien and his comrades looked after during the war. Um, I think there's also a couple of shots as well. This is just an interesting thing. I watched Saving Private Ryan recently, and uh, which is a war film. And I think also there's a couple of points in that film where the director of Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, uh, borrows some camera techniques to represent the the movement of war in the Lord of the Rings. So, for example, in Saving Private Ryan, 
there's a bit uh, in that film where the they're running across the ground and the camera focuses on their feet hammering into the mud and splashing through the puddles meanwhile as well as the sound of gunfire and the thud of their their feet on the ground as well in the fellowship of the ring we see a similar shot as the urukai begin their hunt for the remaining members of the fellowship and you see their feet thud into the ground and in time with the music and this is this hits home as well with uh, the drums of war that Jackson has in the theme song for the for um, for the Urukai and for Isengard, um, and Jackson does something again similar again in the two in two towers, where uh, the Urukai are they quicken their pace, and you see their feet thudding into the ground, um, and I think what Jackson is shown in doing this is he's ramming home that we are watching a film about war, and that. Throughout this film, Lord of the Rings, mankind is in a dis- is in a fight against its own destruction. Um, in any case, um, with the previous films, like I discussed, or that I've discussed rather, um, the context for the book and the film is uh, is key to their significance for me. The books, I believe, came out in the context of the Cold War, and the films came out in the context of 9/11 and the Iraq War. Um, so when you look at both of these through the through that lens, Tolkien's war experiences and the debates uh, discussed in his books take on, in my opinion, new poignancy. Um, and I suppose in addition to that, uh, Tolkien invites us to consider and question industrialization by casting uh, industrialization and the technology it produces in a bad light. Um, Tolkien, um, I think he said, or, or, yeah, yeah, to Tolkien, I think industry makes man greedy, uh, and too powerful, and man who should know better, which is a quote from Treebeard, one of uh, the characters in the, I'm not sure if he's in the, in the books, I presume he is, but he's definitely in the film, um, and he says that against Saruman who's supposed to be a wise powerful wizard i.e. a man of nobility and intelligence uh, who should know better and he is greedy man is greedy Saruman is greedy when um, and when and too powerful when he abuses nature and forgets his place in the world and loses trace of what was I suppose what Tolkien's trying to say of what was once noble and good about man about mankind um, and we see this depicted quite a lot by Tolkien. Um, you see it in the Ringwraiths, you see it in the Orcs, the Urukai, the Goblins, and all of these represent man, I think, when he's seduced by the greed and power that's in society, and that's been made available to him by um, industry and technology. Um, <clears throat> in the Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers, we see Saruman. Uh, as I mentioned before, and he was once a, a great noble wizard, and he's now turned, been turned by a lust for power, and and he's he's turned to the machinery of war to bring destruction upon mankind, but also upon nature. And 
so what we see in Lord of the Rings is a struggle within mankind between power and greed and a lust for power and greed and a struggle struggle for decency and fighting the machines of war um, and industrialization and reconnecting in Tolkien's mythology with nature to bring harmony to the world instead of conflict. Um, it's also quite telling that the, the the people who, if you like, sort the world out, um, who um, destroy the ring, in other words, are quiet, polite, unassuming little country folk, the hobbits, who, in Tolkien's philosophy anyway, are, are otherwise left untouched by these sort of evil deeds. But even they can't escape the greed and the power that is churning up and destabilising the world. Um, the fact that the hobbits destroy the ring, I think, is supposed to signify how honesty and decency can overcome power and greed on the one hand, <clears throat> and sort of how, on the other, everyday people possess the qualities necessary to overcome evil and hatred. Um, so, what is this? What's this sort of telling us about society then? Um, I guess that's a sort of English literature side of the the films, with a little bit of social and cultural and political analysis in there as well. But what do these films tell us about society and whether or not it can be redeemed? I think, first of all, Tolkien uh, acknowledges that society stands on the precipice of destruction. Um, however, it can be saved if we resist power and greed and we reconnect with nature. So, um, presumably then, if we distance ourselves from industry and machines, given that Tolkien cast them in a bad light and embrace some sort of mankind's uh, uh, some sort of noble place on earth among nature and other creatures then we can redeem ourselves and then redeem our society as well so uh, Tolkien then seems to suggest that redemption lies in embracing what we would call the old ways and in indulging in uh, mythology that's fictional, obviously, because it's in a fictional setting, but has sort of folklore, um, sort of folklore aesthetics about it. Folk, yeah, that oldie, worldie sort of folklore, sort of um, blended in with some social realities and blended in with um, superstitions and um, and he's, he's produced a mythology and a philosophy that says that where we are today is going to destroy mankind and going to corrupt us and make us evil people who are going to destroy the world that we live in but we can circumvent this and prevent it if we return to nature and we give up on industry and technology.
And I think this is very in line with the sort of romantic novel, the romantic film in that sense, um, which sort of harks back to a day that never really existed, but has been brought into being because of a repulsion against the way that capitalist society has developed. In the very, very early days of capitalist society in the 17, 1800s, 1900s as well, no, 17th century, uh, 18th century and 19th century, um, when capitalism was developing, so in the early days of capitalism, the emerging capitalist class promised to do away with constant restraints on freedom. But as capitalism has evolved, it began to enclose society more and more than it was under feudalism uh, and the, the medieval uh, structure in society. And so the romantic novel and romantic art emerged as a critique and a, and a, of this and a sort of protest to it as well. And I think in this way Tolkien is very much uh, tapping into that romanticism, consciously or otherwise, I don't know, um, with that critique, with his critique of industrialised society and the alternative that he offers um, takes the form of a sort of mythical nobility and a propriety, if you like, with nature that has never really existed or hasn't existed for a long time in humanity's history. Um, but not, I mean, take nothing away from it. Lord of the Rings is a firmly, uh, in my view, a firmly anti-war novel. The films depict that too. Um, and coming as the the book did anyway in, in the context of the Cold War and the film in the context of the so-called War on Terror and the Iraq War, we can see the emergent sort of anti-war ideologies reflecting a mood in society at that time that I think is still there today in society. And I think that's why the film still works as a great form of art because the, the ideologies and philosophies that underpin it are still relevant to us today. Not to mention the terrific acting, production, camera work. Um, if you can ever watch the extended uh, editions of The Lord of the Rings, I would recommend it. If you can watch the special features, I'd recommend it. It's just in They're just incredible. Um, and, and the last thing to say about Lord of the Rings is it's a great, it's a great book I've been reading at the moment. Um, it's a sort of collected works or selected writings of um, a philosopher called Christopher Codwell. And in this, in his book, in this book, it's called Culture as Politics, um, edited by David Margulies, and it's been uh, it's a Pluto Press, Pluto, <laughs> Pluto Press publication. Uh, and in there, Codwell makes the argument that people want peace and happiness, and I think what Lord of the Rings tries to do is it tries to represent this, even if it does draw, in my opinion the wrong conclusions. So what are the right conclusions? And I'm going to try to use the next 20 minutes to tie this together. What are the right conclusions? Or what are, what are the conclusions that uh, I'm offering? I'm going to try and tie this together with a defence of society first of all, which might sound strange given that um, I'm asking whether or not it can be redeemed. And I've said all the way through this that the issues and debates and emotions and psychologies, philosophies, ideologies within society 
seem to suggest that it's come hit the buffers. But the fundamental problem with society, and what gives it the appearance that it's beyond redemption, is that the class relations within society are antagonistic. Um, I'm going to be quoting quite a lot of Christopher Caldwell uh, in the in my conclusion here. Um, I think he makes the points quite well, and I don't want to be ripping the guy off, so I'm going to. Uh, I'm just giving you a heads up for that now. Uh, furthermore, or as well, whatever, um, <coughs> what gives technology the appearance that it's evil and oppressive, which is what we see in all of the films I've discussed, is because the technology is in the hands of the wealthy and powerful. It's alienated from us. We don't have control over it. And they use their monopoly over technology to exert hegemonic control over us on the one hand and then on the other hand they use their monopoly to get us to buy the technology so at every turn we are alienated from the very technology that we need to be part of contemporary society um, so to sort of give you a better put it in other words I suppose the worker is alienated from technology at its source uh, then again when he goes to buy it and then again when he signs over his data rights to big corporations to sell him another product alienating him again in the process um, and then finally he's alienated when the technology he needs to be a citizen in the 21st century is used against him to monitor his communications by spooks and narcs of various different um, state authorities so in other words technology has the appearance of something evil and negative or, oppres or oppressive in art and I would say increasingly in our society because it controls us rather than the other way around. <clears throat> our relationship to technology is um, presented uh, as, as, as natural uh, and real in all it can be, ever can be, in these films and in society uh, in general. Um, and this is a falsehood. And I think many philosophers have shown this, including Karl Marx, of course. So, if I'm saying society is beyond redemption and I've shown the different ways that the films show that, why am I still wanting to defend society? Well, despite all its flaws that are latent in art and everyday non-art experiences, society is not something that, there's not something to be er eradicated or dismantled. Um, society is what makes us human and a blind a retreat away from society into the individual or something more primitive um, negates the very thing that distinguishes us from a wild beast of whatever description um, so Christopher Codwell says in the, in the book that I mentioned just as the Neurotics return to childhood solutions of problems is unhealthier than childhood. So civilizations return to a primitive solution is unhealthier than primitive life itself. Social relations must be changed so that love returns to the earth and man is not only wiser but more full of emotion. So in other words, civilization and society make us free from the state of nature and from lawlessness 
um, all the duties, obligations and constraints of society which we bemoan frequently are the means from which we attain our freedom. Which is ironic. And if we had none of this, we would, every day, live under the tyranny of fear. And I think this is what the Dark Knight tries to show, um, but it argues for a return to the status quo and tries to have us believe that there is no alternative to our current capitalist society. And in a society where... No. Um, Each individual's desires in the state of nature cancel one another out and no one gets what they want. So if we're living in a state of constant fear, no one gets what they want, is what I'm trying to say. And no one's free. So it's society with its rules and obligations and constraints that means we're allowed to pursue we've got some freedom but then you could respond is society not loaded with people who get nothing while the rich take everything well yes it is but I don't think this is a reason to disband society or allow it to sink into hell or allow it to enter into a permanent state of misery and I'm going to use Cordwell again to back up my points he says The members of bourgeois society, worker, capitalist and capitalist intellectual, want an increase in material wealth, happiness, freedom from strife, from danger of death, security. But bourgeois society, capitalist society, today produces a decrease in wealth, insecurity, constant war. Therefore, all who live in bourgeois society are unfree because it is not giving them what they want. So the problem then, or the the central problem that I'm trying to get across is that and the one which these films I think try to grapple with but never really actually sees or plot a way forward from is the class antagonisms within society which are leading to society's decadence I suppose and its appearance as irredeemable at both an individual level um, and an institutional one. Um, uh, uh, and it's these class societies that are uh, what I'm saying is it's these class societies that are um, these class antagonisms that are present at an individual level and an institutional one that, that that's a central problem so again I guess then uh, what we are uh, we're what I'm trying to say and what these films hint at but never really go go into the central contradiction in society is or we're at a situation in contemporary society where pardon me and again um, society is necessary to keep us free and safe from the tyranny of fear which is what the state of nature or life without society um, represents but society today is also decadent and therefore unfree so how can we reach a resolution without uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and what is the implication for art Um, I guess since this is where I kind of started from well, our man Cordwell's on hand to save us again. Um, but things have gone to have gone so. He says, 
but things have gone so far that no tinkering with the social relations, no adaptation of the instincts to the environment by means of art will cure this. Social relations themselves must be rebuilt. The artist is bound for the sake of integrity to be thinker and revolutionary. Social relations must be altered so as not to contract consciousness, but to widen it. Social relations must be altered so as not to contract consciousness, but to widen it. Very profound, as old Caldwell. So, how can, how can art go about that then? How can it widen consciousness? Well, you might remember back in uh, the first part of this podcast, I recommended a book to you uh, called The Necessity of Art by a guy called Ernst Fischer. And in this book he says, but non-Marxists, oh sorry, but non-Marxist artists and writers are also taking part in the discovery of the world in which we live and in the artistic expression of many of its aspects. Every effort to present reality without prejudice, that's to say, with all sincerity, helps us all to advance. And Codwell adds to this as well. Um, I was going to try and say, use my own words here, but I was basically saying what Codwell says, so don't want to rip the guy off. And he says that art is not unconscious behaviour, it is conscious feeling. That is precisely the purpose of art, for the artist makes us makes use always of those verbal or pictorial images of reality which are more charged with feeling than cognition. He uses them in such a way that the effects reinforce each other and fuse to a glowing mass. Consequently, he who believes that all who he who believes that at all costs the feeling element must be broadened in present day consciousness must preach and secure not the contraction of all consciousness but the widening of feeling consciousness. That is art's mission. So, after all this, has our society reached its zenith? Has it peaked? Has has capitalism, or say it another way, has capitalism reached its zenith? Has it peaked? Is it time to go? Move on. Allow the process of change. If so, this could explain the turmoil and the contradictions that we see in films. So if our society has peaked, or capitalism has peaked, and has thrown up tortured motifs of social angst, how can this be remedied? Where do we go from here? Well, as a Marxist, I believe our society needs to see, it won't surprise you, a revolution and socialist transformation. Society can be redeemed, but not so long as the plenty that exists on the planet in terms of natural resources, man-made commodities, and so on, are owned and controlled by a very wealthy and powerful minority who refuse to share, and whose way out of any and all crises is simply to get us to consume more, thus laying the foundations for the next crisis. Society relies Sorry, society's redemption. Um, no, what am I saying? So, yeah, society's redemption lies in its renewal through revolutionary transformation. Then, um, and perhaps the reason for the sort of 
tortured anguish in these films that I've talked about is because society is in a tailspin of stagnation, which I mentioned, said before. Um, the new society wants to come to the fore. Um, that to say, a society after capitalism wants to be born and come into being, but it's unable to do so because the the balance of the class forces within society has yet to tip in the direction of a revolutionary end to capitalism. And that might sound like a, like a, okay, great mate, thanks, you've just said society's fucked and the only way we can sort it out is by, uh, you know, I was kind of hoping you might say that if we just bought less it might make everything okay, like if we just told Coca-Cola and McDonald's to fuck off it might be alright, you know, that might sound like a non-solution, my solution might sound like a non-solution, but actually all around us exists the means to put capitalism to an end. Um, technology, which in these films is a, is a double-edged sword, has actually reached a stage where we can shorten the working week and end some of society's more bureaucratic jobs, just as an example. Um, there exists enough wealth in society for it to be redistributed among communities so that we can get better health and education, better facilities for mental health, better facilities for drug abuse and addiction. Um, that's just another example. <clears throat> and there's enough wealth to do that and end homelessness, hunger and poverty as well. There's also enough wealth to address people's work-life balance, improve people's well-being, uh, you know, yeah, and sort of improve people's well-being through improving the people's work-life balance instead of sort of hyper-individualising mental health treatment by telling people to download ambulance chasing apps um, onto their phone uh, or to just go out for a run or a walk and what are the final words to say then anguish and societal angst exist in art because they are rife in society as I said right at the start, art is reflective but consolidative too of different social, cultural, political, psychological, philosophical, ideolo ideologies, emotions and feelings that are in society. If we correct the balance in society, uh, in other words, dismantle capitalism, bring about social transformation, change people's work-life balance, invest in better facilities and services, then these motifs of torture and social angst, anguish, um, contradiction about technology and where we're going, where we've been, um, all, these mo all these motifs that make society, all these motifs in art that make society look like it's at a dead end and can only crumble and die and take humanity with it in the process. If we correct that with a socialist transformation of society, these motifs will begin to dwindle. And instead of them being used to say something like um, what the Dark Knight does, which basically says, yeah, yeah, things are terrible, but there's no alternative. 
Um, these motifs of angst and anguish will appear in art to remind us of where we've come from, um, how much we've achieved to correct society and to prevent us making those mistakes again. Well, I think I'm at the end. I don't really think I want to say any more than that. That's about two and a half hours already. I think that's enough for you to chew over and consider. And, um... Test out whenever you're next in a contemplative mood. Test out some of these ideas that I've, or these provocations that I've provided you with, and see if there's any truth in them. See how far the they can go as being valid. How far their validity could stretch. And um, also think about ways that art is active. It's an ongoing process, first and foremost, but it's also active in political, cultural and social debate and how art's validity comes from its participation in social, cultural and political debate. And what makes art possible is being part of a society, is taking part in society and also new technologies that are made available by society. And... Lastly, while society goes through a crisis, and it should, I should say that my fundamental view sitting here today recording this podcast is that Western society is, uh, is fucked, is, is in a serious crisis. I mean, pandemic. the pandemic has shown that our social institutions, what exists of them, cannot cope with this crisis, that our culture is geared towards individualism and not social responsibility, that our political systems are not flexible, that they don't have enough legitimacy, and that the people that want power are in power, refuse to make the reforms necessary to give governance legitimacy it needs, to get institutions off their arse, and to get people active in society. And for decades we've had the Thatcherite ideology of there's no alternative, that we have to accept neoliberalism, we have to accept the state shrinking away and retreating, and we have to accept, and Thatcher's mantra was that there is no such thing as society. And all that has done has laid the grounds for crisis after crisis, and each crisis has made society more vulnerable to the next. And so, while society is in crisis, while individuals are in crisis, we should not reach the conclusion that society cannot be redeemed, that it cannot be saved. We should re- resist motives in art that tell us this, but we should also resist motives and debates and ideas in art and in society that there is no alternative to the current crisis, because all that does is lead to misery, a total abandoning of empathy and compassion for one another, and allows for the spread and growth of evil, such as fascism, villainy, and uh, crime, seriously harmful crime, 
So I'm going to leave you with that, with those thoughts. I'll leave you with a couple of minutes of tunes, a couple of music minutes of this music to play us out. And um, I'll be back in a few weeks' time, maybe, with another podcast. See where we are. Take care of yourself, folks. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say. Until next time. Thank you.